Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Rob Trzesinski and Jason Crawford of Roots of Progress. Rob, Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Good to be here. Awesome. So, so Jason, first want to get into um, the Roots of Progress um, really quick. What is your sort of desired uh, goal with it? Here, here's what I see your goal with it, and I want you to play it back and see if uh, see if I'm missing. You, you think you want to? You know, the tweet that started this podcast is: you think there should be a capitalism appreciation course or field or uh, in, you know sort of institution the way there is uh, art appreciation, and that we grossly misunderstand progress uh, or, or, or misunderappreciate what progress means. And so, feel free to edit or add to that. But then I'm curious what it would look like if we fully did appreciate progress? Like what is sort of the desired uh, change or changes that would come from a successful capitalism or, or progress of appreciation? Yeah, sure. So uh, that tweet got pretty popular. I have to give credit to my brother, David, who actually came up with it uh, at dinner. And uh, I, you know, I thought it was so good that I, that I put it out there on Twitter. It seems to have touched a nerve. Yes, the, uh, you know, the roots of progress, my blog began as um, really a personal project. Uh, you know, really to examine the foundations, you know, what I saw is was coming to see as the foundations of my worldview, really, my, my philosophy and politics. I realized that those were pretty deeply rooted in a keen appreciation for how far we've come as a species, uh, how many problems we've solved, really how crappy life was just a few hundred years ago, and, you know, how uh, how much better we have it today. And, you know, really feeling like uh, if you love human life, if you love you know ha- health, happiness, thriving, and flourishing, you kind of need to look at that that history, that amazing upward trajectory, and just ask yourself, wow, how did we get here? Why did it take so long in, in human history for us to even really get going on on some of those things? And uh, how do we how do we keep it going and, and even speed it up? Uh, and conversely, you know, what could threaten to slow, stop, or or even reverse it? Um, so I started uh, looking into that just for myself. It began as a personal project, and then I started blogging about it. And now it's uh, you know really become I want to tell this story of progress to the world. Yeah, and and, and Robert, you, you've been thinking about this. You've been writing about this. You've been speaking on on, on these related topics for for decades. What like what is sort of the thread that ties your work together? And how have you seen sort of this uh, interest in progress uh, rise and fall in in the last decade? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, that this has become something of a popular thing recently. You know, Stephen Pinker has come out with a book, Enlightenment Now, where he talks about the amazing progress we've made. He's got, and by the way, that's a, that's a must read. Uh, I have disagreements with how he treats everything, but the whole first section of the book is just hitting you over the head with numbers and charts and graphs showing you exactly how much progress human beings have made in the last 200 years. And it's really remarkable. And I spend a lot of my time, you know, writing about politics. Uh, and if you're out there in the discussion of politics, if, if for God forbid you're on political Twitter, all of it is complaining. All of it is, oh, this is a terrible thing, and oh, there's there's drag queen story hour, and how can we permit this to happen? And that's people on the right, and there's some somebody said something outrageous on Twitter, and we have to go drag him and and make him lose his job, and, and all that sort of thing is what consumes every like nook and cranny of people's lives when they think about politics. 
And it's such a backward perspective if you actually looked and realized how much better everything is and how much we've accomplished, you know, in the last 200 years in terms of making human life. Well, I was about to say immeasurably better, but actually it is measurably better. Uh, not Not every aspect of that progress can be measured quantitatively, but a lot of it can. And it's not just material progress. It's not just, okay, we, you know, we're wealthier and we have more food and, and that sort of thing, as, as important as it is to be able to eat. It's also spiritual progress, and, and that's something Stephen Pinker does a good job at, where he talks about how people are more educated. Uh, and all around the world, people have, have much higher levels of education than they used to have. They have more opportunities to enjoy culture. It, all these things that we also think of as spiritual dimensions of life, which, again, are hard to measure, but a lot of parts of that that can be measured, we can see there's improvement. So if you started from that premise, it wouldn't be, oh, how terrible that somebody said something bad over here. It would be how fortunate we are, how grateful we should be that that everything's gone so well. And then let's try to figure out what's so good about the life, the, the life and the system and the, and the, and the, the way of life and the, and the way of doing things, the political system we have, and how can we keep that? Let me jump in on just on the last thread because uh, you know, material you can't even debate and, and even you know quality of life you, you, or, or, or pleasure or happiness you can't debate. But even on the spiritual side, like if you, if you pulled people and asked if they had a connection to something deeper than themselves or do they have more meaning in their lives now than, than they used to when, when people also talk about you know the loneliness crisis or the meaning crisis or opioid or, or the increase in depression, are those things true to a point but still better than they used to be? Or how, how do you think of it? Well, again, there's a lot of there's a lot of debating you can go, and I've I've actually dipped a few toes into this. And if you actually go into the people who who try to measure this sort of thing, there's a lot of controversy, and it's very hard to measure because you don't have good statistics from before. But you know, the opioid crisis, you know, is is a serious. There are always problems in the present, so you have the opioid crisis. But it used to be, you know, uh, uh, the, there was a reason why prohibition was a popular proposal, you know, a hundred years ago, and that was because the widespread drug Drunkenness and alcoholism, rampant alcoholism, was was considered to be a major social problem. So it's not like any of this is new. Uh, but by spiritual, I mean not yet. You had the problems of loneliness, but on the other hand, we have far better uh, ability to communicate with other people than we ever used to. You know that that uh, if you have rel- if you have family and they don't live near you, you 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 can you can be in constant contact with them. But also the idea that you know there's a lot of glamorization of the past that happens a lot of sort of a golden ageism, you know, it's like, Oh, well, things are so much, you know, but when I was a kid, things were so much better. You know, the kind of trying to do a best by best Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart accent on that. But the, that golden ageism really misses that life really was terrible in a whole bunch of different ways. And that includes the fact that you were much less likely to have the opportunity to find a job you find interesting and fulfilling because you know there was uh, fewer options, fewer less education available to people, fewer options than the kind of jobs you did. You were likely doing menial physical labor. Uh, you go back far enough, a couple centuries, and you know the vast majority of the population is basically working 14 hours a day out in the fields. This is not a you know glamorization of the past aside. This is not a a spiritually fulfilling way to live. So I think. 
when you know there's, there's a there's a treadmill here you know when you you see this a lot they actually they call it the hedonic treadmill right when things go so much better for you you get used to it and suddenly you start complaining about uh things that you would never have thought to complain about before but because you, you get used to how great your life is and i think we're in a giant culture-wide hedonic treadmill uh where we're all going around complaining about what are for the most part first world problems uh, and not realizing how much less fulfilling life would have been for the average person uh, 100, 150, 200, 300 years ago. When you want to think about um, spiritual life, you know, I would just ask, think of your favorite piece of music, right? Your, your favorite recording that just fills you with, uh, you know, with, with an extreme emotion, whatever your preferred emotion is, whether that's, you know, energy or angst. But now think of what you would have had to do to hear that music, you know, just a little over 100 years ago before we had the phonograph, right? You would have had to play it yourself on an instrument if you were wealthy enough to own an instrument and if you were skilled enough to be able to perform, you know, the music or maybe hum it in your head, right? But to actually hear it, you would need to do that. Or if you were super wealthy, you know, you could actually hire a, a musician to come perform it from you live. Even if you were a, a king, you know, and you got up in the middle of the night or you couldn't sleep and you wanted to hear your favorite symphony, you know, you couldn't even assemble <laughs> the musicians fast enough to play it for you. It would have been just literally impossible. And today you can, you get Spotify and for a few dollars a month, you can hear the best recording of any piece of music you want performed by the greatest, you know, uh, performer of that music. And, and you can actually get their best performance in the world in their entire career over their lives that they ever did. And that's available to you instantly on demand in the privacy of your own home. Right. So, and, and to get to my point about the hedonic treadmill, you still get people saying, oh, it's buffering. My internet connection isn't fast enough. And, you know, <laughs> that's right. People will still find something to complain about because they haven't gotten that mindset of, of realizing how good things are. Okay. So let me jump in for a sec. I assume uh, you know, both of your projects – uh, are educating people and helping educate people that, hey, life used to suck much more <laughs> than, than than it does now. And in fact, if you realize what, what it was back then, you'd realize it doesn't suck now. It's actually amazing. <laughs> it's incredible. So l let's say people understand that. What, it, what if another critique comes and says, okay, I understand that it's so much better than than it was, but you know, we have, we have real problems today. And you can debate how real or not real they are, or to what extent they're uh, climate change, you know, nuclear war, uh, you know, the threat of nuclear war, AI, nanotechnology, bioengineering, and is it possible that sort of progress gets us to a place from scarcity to abundance, but once we are in an abundant world and we're not there yet, and we may be you know, a few decades away from that, we need something else. That, it's not, that what got us here won't necessarily get us there, and we will need more to you know, work with the things that we have instead of sort of continue to strip mine in a, what some people would say, unsustainable. How would you respond to this? Well, first of all, as the oldest guy probably in this conversation, I have to stop you on the threat of nuclear war because I grew up with the threat of nuclear war being a real immediate, it could happen in the next five minutes thing. And so we are way, way, way far away from as, as No matter what problems there are now, we are way far away from that now because there, there was a real, I mean, this is pre-1989, pre the fall of communism, there was a real moral terror that hung over everybody's head and it was a real thing. Because we knew that you know something could set off a spark, the Soviets could go nuts and decide to just to, to do a first strike. There could be a giant misunderstanding. It could all happen in the next five minutes, and there's nothing anybody could do to stop it. So 
that's an example of a case where I'd say, you know, people don't realize, <laughs> you know, even citing that now, you don't realize how much worse that was before. But I also want to talk about on the, on the issue of sustainability, the idea of, is it sustainable? Well, we've been sustaining it for 200 years now. Okay. So if you go back, there's, you know, the graph that's going around that, that's, that has kind of gotten famous is one showing basically global GDP per capita back to 1800. And it's this giant, you know, hyperbolic curve or parabolic curve going, you know, geometric growth going up. And it it just keeps going. And World War II isn't even a blip on it, okay? So things you think of as horrible cataclysms uh, in, in human history don't really slow it down. So it's just amazing phenomenon that has happened. And so when you talk about it being unsustainable, well, it keeps getting sustained year after year after year. Now, there are theoretical reasons I can argue why that is. But that's why I'm talking about why recognizing the history is so important, because it's almost strange to ask the question of, oh, this is unsustainable. We're going to strip mine our way out of this. Well, if we were going to do that, I mean, Malthus would have been right 200 years ago if that were true. And he wasn't. He was proved wrong again and again and again. I think the question of sustainability is is a good one because I think uh, we need to think carefully about what kinds of sustainability we want and, and what kind of sustainability is important, right? So the, the modern concept of sustainability, which I think only goes back to about the 1970s, is a concept of sustaining a particular process indefinitely, as if we were never going mm-hmm. to come up with better processes, never going to transition. But, you know, before that, we had a different concept of what we needed to sustain. And what we needed to sustain was growth. Um, it was progress. It was improving the standard of living. It was improving the capacity of, of the economy to provide for, you know, more and more people. And the way you sustain that kind of uh, growth is not by choosing, quote unquote, sustainable technologies. It's rather by uh, making progress to new and better technologies that make use of uh, more abundant resources. So when we were running out of sperm whales for lighting oil, we switched to kerosene. Thank you, Rockefeller. When we were running out of elephant tusks for billiard balls, we switched to plastic. Uh, and the same thing if tortoise shells for cones and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, many, many animal products were replaced by plastic. When we were running out of natural fertilizer from the, uh, the, uh, the island off the south, uh, off of the coast of South America, where they had uh, seagull droppings uh, stories high, uh, when we were running out of that natural fertilizer, we invented the Haber-Bosch process and were able to synthesize fertilizer. So, you know, in all of these cases, actually, um, in fact, a lot of the history of the, of the uh, 19th century in the Industrial Revolution was migrating off of uh, bio sources, off of animal and plant sources that we were that were that our needs were you know exponentially growing and we're going to outstrip those those animal and plant resources and switching to much more abundant mineral resources. So yeah. if we are near the end of any mineral resource running out, we should be just as our ancestors did back then. We should be looking for the the next new technology that will make use of some you know some new resource that is orders of magnitude more abundant. Uh, for instance, you know, nuclear technology and uh, its orders of magnitude better fuel efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, the guy, the guy to go to on this actually is Julian Simon. He was an economist, uh, mostly from late twenty, was mostly active in the late twentieth century, and he wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource. And he addressed this issue on sort of on the theoretical on the theoretical level, addressed this issue of resource depletion. And he said, actually, the the ultimate resource is the human mind. And the more human minds there are out working to solve problems and come up with new technology, 
the more resources they're going to create. And this is the idea, you know, humans don't use up resources. They create new resources by coming up with new ideas. And he looked at that, at that history that Jason just talked about and said, you know, every time they say, oh, we're having a shortage of this thing or we're having a shortage of that thing. This is basically why Mal Thomas Malthus was wrong. Every time we have a shortage of something, somebody comes up with a new idea for a new technology and either taps a new resource or finds more of the existing resource and we keep growing. And the reason we keep growing is because of the power of the human mind to innovate. And so if you're asking about what went right, what is it we have to sustain? What's the big lesson that we're going to learn from this history? You know, if we want to keep this progress going, the big lesson is the power of the human mind to innovate and the need to liberate that and to allow that to happen and not to constrict uh, it's a good thing. A lot of the things about, oh, we have resource shortages or it's unsustainable. A lot of the solutions are, so let's constrict everything and let's, you know, make less things possible. And his, you know, and he, he came out of the population growth uh, movement where, you know, he actually was working on trying to reduce population growth. And he suddenly realized how perverse that was because every new human being born is somebody who can solve problems. So we shouldn't, we should not want to constrain things in order to solve problems. We should want to open things up. In fact, if there's anything to be worried about, it might be that population growth uh, in the world is slowing. <laughs> well, that's, that's <laughs> and, and, the irony is that you know all the concern about the population growth being excessive. The only the real problems we're seeing now are countries that have now declining population growth. Right. And every million fewer you know human beings that are born, that's one fewer one in a million genius that we get in the world you know, to help with all of our problems. And, and, and yeah, so I understand, I understand that. And I also understand the complaints, you know, that Peter Thiel and others have, Hey, economic growth isn't rising fast enough, you know, and, and hence the, the need for, for what you guys, the work that you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, let, let's say that we, you know, that the progress work that you're doing and others are doing works so well that we get everyone on board and next 10 years, you know, you your next you know, few decades, you see a surge, you know, economic growth is back where it was science is back where it was, et cetera. Everyone's really excited about progress. What do you say to the critique? So we're not in the place where we are now where people don't really value progress enough. Do you think at some point, because there's a critique that progress or, or mark, unchecked markets are sort of like a paperclip maximizer, that, that at some point it will be too much? Or do you think that is sort of a, a flawed premise and that it, it is infinite progress is the, is the, way, of, is the way to go? <laughs> Well, I, I, I look at that and I think that, you know, you said earlier, we're not in an abundant society yet, or maybe a few decades away. We are in an abundant society by any historical measure, but we're probably at what would be considered a poor society compared to the standards of 100 or 200 years from now. There's, there's a British uh, television series they did a while back, I think it was called 1900 House, where they had a bunch of people, they got a group of ordinary British people from about the year 2000, and they got and they had them live as if they were in the year 1900, and it was awful. <laughs> you know, everything took so much more work to get anything done. Uh, the standard of living was so much lower. They were colder. They were hungry. They were. It, it was. You know, it I was. The, uh, uh, I think the mother ultimately cheated by sneaking in some shampoo. Yeah, exactly. They've got a couple versions of this, and people cheat like all like all get out because they just can't handle living the way people lived only a hundred years ago. So the thing about this is this, is that I, the, the concept of, you know, in economics, the concept of scarcity doesn't mean you have a small amount of something. It means only that something exists in a limited quantity, right? So we're always going to have scarcity in that sense, that wealth always exists in a limited quantity. You know, even if it gets larger, it's not unlimited. But the point is that abundance 
is always relative to what you're used to. And you think of a Star Trek future, right? We've already projecting in our minds, here's what things might be like, you know, where we can travel uh, faster than light speed across the galaxy. We can tell a computer to give us uh, tea, Earl Grey, hot, you know, and it immediately just appears. We're not even anywhere close to that technology. So we can imagine living in a society that's far more abundant than today. So the uh, human desires are not limited. If you have if you have something, you can always have more of something. You can have it better. You can have it faster. And we're talking about the power of the human mind to innovate. And it's not just the power of the human mind to say, to come up with new ways of creating the same old things. It's also the power of the human mind to create new things we didn't know we, we wanted until somebody created them. I mean, isn't that what sort of you know, Steve Jobs sort of did in, in computers, right? He says, well, wait a minute, we can do something. We can't, you're not just going to create a better version of the existing computers. We're going to create something that does things in a new way that's easier and more interesting. And, and you know, we'll all have, you know, a giant music library carrying around in our pockets and, and that sort of thing. And, and not only will, uh, will the world get better in all those ways, but also um, it will happen with us working less, so, you know, I think there'll, you, you can extrapolate out from the future to a time when, you know, everybody takes a gap year off after school before beginning work uh, just because they can. Uh, and everybody retires at age 40 and we have, you know, 20 hour working weeks are the norm with, you know, three day weekends uh, and, and three months of paid vacation per year, right? If you just, oh, yeah, if you the, just extrapolate from... Yeah, the idea of, of it being normal for people to go to college and spend the year the years eighteen to twenty two roughly, you know, not working and going and learning is extraordinary in historical perspective that that would be a normal thing for human beings to do, as opposed to be only a very small elite being able to do that. So my, my last question on, on this line of thinking is: but Do you concede? And I, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily have an opinion here. I'm just curious. Do you concede that there is what some people call a singularity, uh, and, and or do you think that there will be some? Maybe it's 100 years from now, maybe it's a few hundred years from now, a post-progress era. Well, I, 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 with regard to that sort of – so I, for a while, I worked on a, a sort of a futurist blog, and, and you know, you, I, I spent a lot of time studying the singularity people. And there's a lot of hype that goes around that. It, to some extent, it gets so speculative and science fiction-y that I'm, part of my answer is I'll let people 200 years from now worry about that. I, I, I don't – I mean, because, again, there's no such thing as a post-scarcity economy because there's always things always exist in a limited quantity right and so i don't think there's going to be anything like called a post abundance economy because like i said you know there's always new crazy science fiction things we can think of to do to, or to create that we haven't done before and uh you know we're going to try to figure out you know how to, how to go to other planets we're going to try to figure out uh how to you know make I keep falling back on Star Trek because that's like everybody knows that kind of, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars. Everybody knows these kind of science fiction-y things that we talk about. Who knows if those things are possible? Well, we're always going to be trying to do something that's more and beyond that. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. One, another part that people, some people say is uh, the difference between, you know, complex and complicated systems and, and complicated systems are, are things like a Boeing 747 or even like a pencil. Like I couldn't create one myself, but, you know, <laughs> You line up enough people in, in a market economy, and, and voila, it gets done, and it gets done great. Uh, that's a comp complicated system, uh, uh, something that can be reduced, uh, whereas complex systems uh, can't really be reduced. And if you if you reduce them, you sort of um, you can mess with the way that they they work in some way, like um, like a rainbow or a cloud. You know, it's hard to sort of really make sense of. 
Um, and, and, you know, we don't put market relationships on our, you know, on parenting or, or you know, you know, certain elements where, you know, to reduce it would, um, would taint it in some way. And, and some people think that the environment is a, or certain elements of the environment are sufficiently complex and we are using complicated mechanisms to try to address it and something gets lost in the process. Well, I, I, the, the interesting thing about that sort of thing is, again, a lot of this is we're pointing to very real existence of progress. And then people point to oftentimes very speculative things of, well, maybe this system is so complicated. The history of the past 200 years, even in, and, and that imp- includes applying to things that you call environmental issues, has been one of creating progress and then spotting problems and then coming up with solutions to those problems. Right. So the idea is that human ingenuity is the, uh, you know, to the extent it create, to, to the extent our inventions create problems, human ingenuity is also the proven, demonstrated, historically demonstrated answer to solving those problems. I mean, take the history of the smokestack. You know, why is, why do factories have smokestacks? It was because, well, they were creating smoke that was then going and, you know, depositing soot all over the local town where the people lived and creating all sorts of problems. So they said, well, our solution is build it taller and then, you know, send it up higher in the atmosphere and it won't, you know, it'll disperse by the time it comes down and lands anywhere. So they say dilution is the solution to pollution. Uh, you, You spread it out and then it doesn't bother people. And then, you know, to the extent that that became a problem, they came up with other things, other ways to get particulates out of the, uh, just get soot out of the air and new fuels and that sort of thing. Again, technology and creativity and increased wealth in order to implement those solutions. Those are the solution. Those are the way we have for, you know, for two, 300 years, those are the way we have solved every one of those problems. And, and capitalism gets a lot of blame for this, but cap, people, if people realize the history, they'd also understand the extent to which capitalism is key to the solution. So, for example, take something like hygiene and sanitation, the fact that you have sewer systems and you have you know, cities of millions of people and there's not open sewage out in the streets because it all gets taken care of and it all gets, you know, we have a clean urban environment because all of this the human waste gets is taken out and processed None of that's possible without enormous amounts of iron and steel and an enormous industrial infrastructure that's able to create. You know, you have you could have scientists telling you, here's what you need to do to prevent the spread of disease. But you also then have to have the factories and, and the, the inventors and the industrialists creating this abundance, a relative abundance of iron and steel and all the things that you need to build the pipes and the sewers and the concrete Everything like that you need to do in order to implement that solution in order to make a healthy environment for people to live in. So the, the point is, if people recognize that that's been the history of the last two to 300 years, it would seem less daunting to say, oh, what if there's some enormous problem out there waiting, hanging over us that's going to kill us? You'd have, there'd be more confidence in the fact that this is what we've, this is the problem, we've, kind of problem we've been solving all along. On the question of complex systems, uh, I'll just uh, defer to David Deutsch and his book, uh, The Beginning of Infinity, uh, where he says, anything that is not forbidden by the laws of physics is possible given the right knowledge. Right. Yes. And, and we might not have the right knowledge yet, but there's faith that we will. But eventually, yes. Yeah. We can, we can always get there eventually. Okay. One thing you mentioned um, is that we'll work less. And, and you know, one, um, some people say that in hunter-gatherer societies, you know, we, we spent like 15 hours a week working and it was really an agricultural revolution where we really started working long hours. And then, 
you know, Keynes predicted that, you know, by now we'd be also working significantly less than we are today. So what happened there? And I'm curious, what gives us confidence that we'll work less in the future? Yeah. Um, so as for the hunter gatherers, I haven't researched that one in detail yet. I have seen, uh, some, I, I've seen some commentary along the lines of, um, you know, that they weren't actually counting things correctly when they did those studies. For instance, maybe they counted uh, the amount of time you went out and kind of hunted or gathered, but not the amount of time that was equivalent to, you know, food preparation or housework and so forth. So those may not be accurate numbers. In any case, you know, what did those, what did those hunter-gatherers get for their, for their hours that they put in, right? They didn't get um, antibiotics. They didn't get air conditioning, right? Uh, they didn't get cars or, uh, you know, any of the things that, that we enjoy today. So sure, if you don't have a lot of technology and your uh, hours of labor aren't getting you the amazing standard of living that we have today, maybe you don't put in all those hours, right? The exact, you know, the, the, the ideal um, number of hours to work per week is going to be dependent on what you get for those hours. And if you don't have much technology, you're not getting much back, maybe you work less. But why am I so confident that uh, we'll will be working less in the future because that is actually the history of, you know, if not the last 50,000 years, then at least certainly the last, um, I don't know, a couple, you know, a couple hundred years. It, you know, we didn't used to have uh, two day weekends. Uh, it used to be, you know, used to you'd be lucky, you know, you get maybe one day off. Uh, and it turned out that there were, you know, different religions wanted different days. Some religions wanted Saturday, some wanted Sunday off. And so finally, you know, one factory uh, just said, okay, fine, we'll give you both days off, you know, and then we, we kind of got the weekend spreading from there. Um, much more, you know, 40 hour work week is low compared to what the standard used to be. I think it used to be 80 and was reduced gradually, you know, down to where we are now. Retirement used to not be a thing that existed. You worked until you die. <laughs> um, child labor, of course, was common. Uh, paid vacations, uh, you know, are, are, are relatively new, right? So all of these things, you know, people ask, what if automation takes all the jobs? You know, my answer is like, I, I hope it does, right? It's not, I, I hope it does that faster because what happens is when automation takes jobs, maybe in the short run, it takes away an individual's entire job, right? But in the long run, what happens is it takes away a little piece of everybody's job. And you know what? That's actually a good thing because we get to work less and have, uh, and simultaneously have an increased um, standard of living. So uh, the, the more we, the more the economy progresses, and the more we can produce for our hours, I think the more we'll continue to also work a little bit less and just enjoy more leisure. Yeah, here's where I'm actually going to disagree with Jason a little bit. I'm I'm not as confident that we're actually going to work less. I think we're going to work. Uh, we might very well work as much as we do now, but we will do so because we choose to do so. You know, because it's not like work is, you know, a punishment imposed on us. Uh, for a lot of us, work is something we choose to do. We decide we like to do something. We want to do it. We like the rewards we get from it. And, you know, for example, it's really easy. There's, there's been this trend recently of people uh, people uh, writing books about how you can retire at age 30. And uh, as far as I can tell, the main answer to that is write a book about how to retire at age 30, sell copies of the book, and then retire off of that. But uh, the answer invariably on how to retire at age 30 is basically to save all of your money and then live on extremely little. And there's a guy who has this blog where he talks about how to live on $25,000 a year. And you can do that. And the thing is, you can actually live pretty well by historical standards on $25,000 a year. You know, if or we talked about I talked about the 1900 house, people living like they did in the 1900s. If you wanted to live the way people did in the year 1900, you could do that on very, very, very little money. 
So it'd be really easy if you retire and live the rest of your life that way. But most people choose not to because not because they're forced to work more, but because there are enormous rewards for working more. You, know, you work hard and you get uh, a nicer life. You get a nicer house. You get uh, to travel. You get to do all the things you really like to do. And, you know, if you choose work, that's rewarding for you. I mean, I think for a lot of, you know, the best, my, my concept of retirement isn't that I'll stop working. My, it's that I'll get to work only on the things that I really want to do. Right. So the work will be something that's enjoyable, entirely something that's enjoyable and rewarding and, and has fewer deadlines than now. So the point is that work is not a punishment. It's not something we're trying to avoid. But the idea is that work will ha over time has produced much, much, much greater rewards and much, much greater positive benefits so that, you know, when you work now, you get a lot more out of your work. Right. And that's, I guess, the more relevant measure. Let me zoom out of here a bit. When when people talk about progress, they often and you write about this a lot, Robert. They often equate it with with liberalism, and that also is often equated with or include democracy. And I think mm -hmm. very recently we're sort of seeing uh, the story of China um, gain. Uh, one, we're seeing sort of democracy not work out as much in, in the Middle East, and so there's some questions there uh, about sort of how natural or how equated with progress it is. And then we're also seeing this sort of other success case with China, which is, you know, very succeeding economically and perhaps for that part of progress, but not, not with the liberal ideals that, um, we sometimes equate what's going on there. How do you make, how do you make sense of it? And how, uh, you know, how tied up is this notion of democracy with, with progress? And is, is it sort of a coincidence or was it necessary that the U S um, you know, a leader in progress uh, had both uh, democratic and capitalist ideals. Well, I, okay, this actually uh, uh, ties into some research I've been working on. There's an interesting little group. It's one of my major research interests going forward. It's an interesting little group in the uh, 1830s in New York City. There are radical Democrats in New York City. And in the 1830s, that meant that you were laissez-faire. You know, <laughs> there was a, a guy named William Leggett, who was sort of the leader of this group, who was an editor of the New York Post at the time. And he uh, had a great way he put it. He called it, he had this, this uh, column he wrote about the sister doctrines. And he argued that basically the free markets and representative government or democracy, he was, he was a member of the Democratic Party, democracy, as he called it, were sister doctrines, that they were philosophically intertwined and came from the same root and were part of the same system. And I think there's a really strong argument to, to be made for that because how we got all this wealth and progress is primarily by liberating the individual to be creative and to invent new things and to start new businesses and to decide what products he wants to buy and all of that. We liberated the individual to go out and engage in initiative and create new things, and that's how we got this enormous wealth. Well, the idea of the individual being liberated, the individual having rights, the individual having freedom – is also the essence of, I think democracy is a somewhat sloppy term for it, but the essence of a free society, of representative government and the rule of law and individual rights uh, protected by government. And historically, we've seen those two have gone, have, have been very closely related. And I think philosophically, you know, in terms of the basic ideas, you see why they have to be related, because the more you have government clamping down from above, the more you're going to cut off not only the freedom of individuals, but their opportunities to build and create and do things. And I think, you know, one thing I, I had a long discussion, with, I have a high school friend, a longtime friend who actually has spent the last 10 years or so in China uh, teaching. 
And he said, you know, the, the thing he pointed out to me is that up to about 2008, China's growth was the result of becoming freer, becoming more like the West, adopting more of a Western model. And it was at 2008 that they saw the financial crisis and they had the Olympics and they were kind of puffed up with themselves. And Xi Jinping, who's the current leader, sort of spearheaded this idea that, no, we don't need to be like the West. We can go back to Maoism, essentially, <laughs> and get a different result this time. And, you know, we're about 10 years into that experiment. And I think that it is, you know, a lot of us are sort of waiting for the other shoe to fall because I think that it really is it really is attempting to do, you know, a Maoist quasi totalitarian system, but expecting a different result the second time around. And I think that that's a contradiction that we haven't really seen play out yet. But, you know, China has just really started moving aggressively in that direction. But they have a tremendous inefficiencies in their economy. I mean, we, we're sort of astonished by how much wealth China has, but that's relative to the fact that they were exceedingly poor 50 years ago. I mean, they were basically in the Middle Ages 50 years ago. They brought in Western technology. They adopted a, a freer, more capitalist system, and they've advanced tremendously. They're still a lot poorer than us, and they still have a very inefficient system, and it remains inefficient in part because they have – an authoritarian government and a lot of a huge amount of corruption and a huge amount of bureaucracy and you know favored companies and cronyism and that sort of thing. So this idea that they have somehow created an alternative model to the free societies of the West is really getting ahead of ourselves. You know, they have managed by becoming more like us, they managed to become much wealthier. They're still a lot poorer and they still have a lot of problems and a lot of inefficiencies. You know, the wealth is astonishing because it's such a large country, but on a per capita basis, they're still way behind us. And I would, we wouldn't want to trade places with them. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think it's a great testament to the power of liberty that even a little bit of it, you know, introducing, introducing just, just partial freedom uh, gets you this sort of catapulting uh, economic growth like China's had. Um, there's a good argument, by the way, that going, so getting even further back um, than economics, uh, I've heard uh, a good argument that part of the reason that uh, the scientific revolution was able to take off in Europe was because of, the, you know, the relative weakening of uh, the Catholic Church after the Reformation. You have these mm -hmm. Protestant and Catholic factions uh, that were now sort of competing with each other and fighting each other. Europe was, you know, especially compared to China at the time, was much more fragmented, right? Europe, you had, you had many different um, countries and in, in many ways competing with each other, whereas China was much more unified and under kind of a central... Uh, you know, uniform authority. And so, you know, heretics in uh, Europe, if they were being persecuted in one place, they could hop across the border somewhere else that maybe even had a different religion and you know, welcomed them in. Uh, and so this allowed a lot of uh, free thinking and ultimately a lot of, you know, progress forward in science and knowledge um, that maybe just wouldn't have been possible uh, under the, the more uniform, uh, you know, society of China. And I'd also point out in the, as a real world test here, you know, the people of Hong Kong are people who really have been given a choice to say, you know, you've you've lived under a system with relative degree of freedom and rule of law, and you're being incorporated into a system that doesn't have that. And, you know, you can ask them how they feel about that in which they would prefer to live under. Uh, we're getting that answer in real time right now. And, and do you have a quick, obviously it's a complicated question, but a quick line on why it hasn't worked out in the Middle East? Yeah. You, you, you mean the Middle East that still has monarchs? <laughs> 
You mean the freedom yeah. that they haven't introduced? Yeah, I don't know. Well, there's an interesting, actually, history of that because, and we sort of, I, I delved into history a little bit during the Iraq War because you know, we were talking about the Ba'ath Party and Saddam Hussein and where did these guys come from? Well, one of the things, one of the places they came from is that at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, the Arab world sort of realized, you know, we're behind. The West is way ahead of us. They're far more powerful. They're colonizing us. You know, we're, we're now a, a British protectorate. How did that happen? And they looked out there and said, what do we need to do to become more like the West? And they went off to Western universities and they encountered the theorists behind fascism. <laughs> and so their idea of, well, we're going to catch up with the West by adopting this great new forward-thinking progressive new system called fascism. And that's where the Ba'ath Party came from. And then Saddam Hussein and then this whole, this whole tradition he had that he came from was guys going to the, you know, Arabs going to the, the, Paris, the Sorbonne in Paris in, in, in the, early the early 1900s and absorbing fascist ideas that were popular in Europe at the time. And they got exactly, of course, the exactly wrong lesson, you know, a, a system that was about to totally discredit itself. But so part of it is that in trying to catch up with the West, they adopted the wrong system. And the other part is that you, that that the Muslim world has not undergone a, a sort of a reformation. They haven't undergone what we went underwent in the Enlightenment, where we adopted you know the values of uh, of reason and science and humanism and respect for individual rights. They have, you know, there, there are inroads being made there. There are people who are, who are fighting very bravely for those influences, but, you know, it, it's the cultural preconditions of prosperity and freedom and rule of law and, and, and a, a, a modern society that they're still sort of tr struggling to, to get to, to, to make native roots in their soil. Right, right. I, I want to zoom out and ask you guys a few, a few big questions and, and let you jump in wherever you see most interesting. One is, what is the role of, of government as it relates to as it relates to progress? One answer could be, hey, get out of the way. Uh, you know, Bill Janeway has written books about you know sort of the uh, the three. I forget what the, the term for it is, but um, you know the relationship between governments and and markets um, and you know governments you know crucial role in research and you know its role in the internet, et cetera. But broadly, what is the role, uh, or how should we think about? Do you like John Rawls' Veil of Ignorance as a moral tool? Basically, what I'm curious: how do you guys think about equality? Because what I see, uh, how I think about progress is: the more progress there is, the more inequality it is. Because because guess what? People are unequal, and meritocracy tends to tends to tends to lead to more unequal outcomes. It's still better for everybody, you know, net because of you know the consumer surplus that they that they gain. But do Corporate as companies get stronger, do they have a role in um, filling some of the safety nets that, that governments used used to fill, or how should we think about some of some of these questions? Yeah, there's an entire right, so industry devoted to safety nets. It's called insurance. <laughs> well, when, I want to jump in this though. Go back to where we started here with the issue of realizing the enormous progress we've made. So I had I did an interview a couple um, earlier this year. I, I interviewed Stephen Pinker. And he's got this book out, Enlightenment Now. He's making the case for progress. He's a, a real evangelist on this. We all have, we have such tremendous progress. Well, I brought up the issue, with this issue came up with the welfare state. He was very like, strong. We have to have a welfare state or else we're going to have the little match girl. Now, do you, anybody remember what the little match girl was? It's this, Hans, it's this extremely grim Hans Christian Andersen story. Basically, it, 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 how it became a children's story, I have 
I have no idea because it's basically about the six-year-old girl with an abusive father who's out freezing to death on the streets in the middle of Copenhagen or something like somewhere like that uh, on on New Year's Eve. And the so the idea that this is our alternative if we don't have the welfare state, it struck me that you know the little match girl is a story from roughly from 1800 or 1840, I think, when it you know this sort of this Dickensian life when. Six-year-olds, you know, with inadequate clothing out on the streets selling matches uh, on a freezing night was considered a normal thing. And it's almost like even Steven Pinker, who's the evangelist of progress, still has in his head the way things were at 1840 as like the, the, the normal we default to if we don't have a welfare state. We're in the wealthiest society ever in human history. The idea that if not for uh, the government taxing us and and giving welfare. And by the way, most welfare doesn't go to help people like that. It goes, it gets paid back to middle class people in Social Security and Medicare. Uh, so, but the idea that without you know the government having these enormous taxes and this enormous welfare state, we'd all be starving on the streets and freezing to death, it is kind of ridiculous when you consider the enormous amount of wealth that we have and the enormous amount of opportunity we have and how easy it is uh, for someone to work to put a uh, relatively easy in the, in the scale of human history, it is for somebody to work and, and put food on the table and a roof over his head. So there's almost like a defeatist premise behind that to begin with, because it assumes that you know you're talking to people, the wealthiest people in the world with the most opportunities in the world, and assuming that without government there to bail them out, they're all going to die. Uh, there's a kind of a perversity in not having. This is what I mean by not having internalized in your own head this idea of how much progress we have made. So now what I will say is, you know, there's there's private charity, but above all else, you talk about what is what should business do to provide it? What business and 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 commerce and capitalism has generally done is make it possible for have this dynamic society where it's so easy to work to provide for yourself. That's the primary thing that that capitalism and business and industry has done. Uh, so making it so that we, we, sh we should have much less need for a welfare state today than we did 100 years ago or 200 years ago. J Jason, do you want to uh, unpack your thoughts on insurance? Oh, yeah, it's just that, um, you know, you asked, should there be safety nets? I mean, if you take that, if you take that concept maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, broadly than it's usually meant, right? It's usually meant a government safety net. But if you just ask, should there be safety nets? Like, well, yeah, of course. You know, there's all sorts of misfortunes that can befall people. One of the great ways in which we have, uh, you know, made progress over the course of human history is, you know, chance events are much less harmful than they used to be. And there are many reasons for that. But, you know, one of the reasons is we do have, um, we have financial products. We have, uh, and, and insurance is, you know, one of the most important of those. Should companies provide it? Sure, that sounds like a benefit that people would certainly want to sign up for, Right. Uh, people do uh, um, get health insurance through their employers today. That's an unfortunate artifact of the way of the, the tax code and, uh, you know, the way that, that that evolved in America. It's, it's actually not a good thing. But, uh, you know, it would be better if they if they just, you know, got enough money to sort of buy health insurance more directly on their own. But, you know, in general, sure, why not have all sorts of products uh, that provide all sorts of, you know, safety nets for, you know, for different people uh, in, in their, under different circumstances? Not to mention, you know, of course, these things coming from, uh, from friends and family and community, right, where, they've, where they have always come from throughout history. Uh, and today with, with the, the, the technology that we have to create communities, especially online, that, you know, it seems like that should be more possible than ever. 
the, the question always comes down to should the government be providing the safety net, right? And so it's my mind that's actually not such a much different question from should the government be providing food? Should the government be providing, you know, clothing? Uh, should the government be providing health care? Should the government provide any, you know, good that is a, that is a value or a service in society? The government ha- doesn't have to provide those things, and I don't see why it has to provide the safety nets. That, that, you know, and I'd also say when government does provide these things, it tends to do a bad job of them. Like Social Security is a much, much, much worse deal for practically everybody who's part of it. It's a much, much worse deal than if you saved your own money. You know, the, the idea the government would take roughly 12.5% of your income for your entire working life and give so little back in return, including there not being a fund of savings that, that you own that if you die goes to your, to your kids. All right, that's, that's one, of the, one of the things about Social Security that is sort of a scandal nobody talks about, uh, how it, the role it has in the wealth gap between blacks and whites, because black men tend to die earlier and they leave, and because they're, you know, they're saving because and their Social Security benefits aren't savings built up that can be passed on. They leave less to their children because of it. That's one of the things that contributes to that. So, you know, a lot of the safety net things the government does are designed around political considerations or designed around somebody's, you know, uh, somebody in Washington wanting to feel pat himself on the back that he's helped out, helped people out. And not are not actually good solutions, uh, and they're not better solutions than what people can provide for themselves. Totally. So, with just a few minutes left, I want to end on a, on a few questions, and we'll let you uh, take it where you find most interesting. For you, Rob, you know one of the critiques of uh, you you book out companion guide to to and ran. Um, it, it's called the, so, so who so who is John Galt anyway? Uh, a yes. reader's guide to Ayn Rand uh, to Ayn Rand's Alice Shrugged. Totally. Uh, and one of the, you know, a few, so many people have uh, been inspired in so many ways by, by Ayn Rand. One of the critiques some people have is she didn't fully appreciate or that libertarianism doesn't fully appreciate how, how social people are and how people want mm-hmm. to belong to things that are bigger than themselves. They, they accept everything that libertarianism uh, suggests, that Ayn Rand suggests but, uh, or proposes, but thinks that right. she misses that part as, a, as an addition. So I'm curious how, how you, how you re- respond to that. Also, yeah, well, it just so it just so happens that in my book, I, I deal. And this is a great way to plug it. In my book, I deal very directly with that. Uh, I have a chapter in which I, I conclude that all an Ayn Rand hero really wants is love, because and it's actually true if you look at the book, because uh, there's so much focus on her defending capitalism and making money. But if you look at the plot structure of the novel, a lot of the plot is driven by the need for friendship and for common values and for. You know, the, the, our two uh, main heroes at the beginning of the novel start out being very lonely. You know, the one guy has a family who doesn't appreciate him, and, and the other, uh, the, the main heroine, uh, has a former lover who has sort of flaked out and she feels betrayed by him. And, and they start out very lonely, and, you know, a lot of part of the process of the novel is I'm getting to, to find companionship with each other, with other like minded people. You know, and there's this whole plot of, of uh, there's a basically a society that's gone beyond big government and is sliding into totalitarianism and people are quitting and dropping out and disappearing and they're not going off to live in a shack in the mountains. They're forming their own little ideal society hidden away from the rest of the world. And she very much is focused on the idea of showing what would an ideal society be and the value of having uh, connections and companionship and trade and, and, and exchange with other people. So, she did not deny that at all. Now, the premise of this sneaking in there is you say something bigger than themselves. And what she rejected is the idea that society is something bigger than yourself. 
in the literal sense that there's, you know, there's not some super organism out there. Society is just a bunch of individuals interacting with each other, gaining value from being with each other, and that they should do so on terms that are good for them. And she rejected any sort of collectivism, any idea that there's some sort of society as a thing above and beyond, apart from the individuals that make it up, that then dictates down to the individuals what they have to do. Totally. Uh, that's fair. Uh, with respect to time, so Jason, why don't you close us out on, on, on progress studies? Um, you know, there's uh, a lot of people are excited about it. One critique someone had, what gender studies is to, uh, you know, social justice warriors, uh, progress studies is to neoliberals. How would you, basically that it has an agenda, you know, that's sort of confirmation bias a little bit. How would you sort of um, respond to that? And why are you really excited about progress studies? Let's close on that. Yeah, and for those who haven't heard, uh, so progress studies is sort of a new term that was introduced a few months ago. There was an article in The Atlantic by Tyler Cowen and Patrick Collison uh, titled, We Need a New Science of Progress, and they called for this new discipline of progress studies to to focus on human progress and how we make it um, and how we can do it better. Uh, you know, I it's a it's a new thing and it's a new community, but the people that I've met so far who are excited about progress studies are very empirical, very historical-minded, and very careful with their epistemology and their approach to, uh, you know, to, to doing their research. So I hope what we'll see is not something that is, you know, sort of driven first and foremost by an ideological agenda, but is, you know, like I'm trying to do with my blog, uh, really very empirical and historical. Let's start from the facts. Uh, let's just sort of look at what happened. Let's get very clear on, on kind of the, the you know, the bottom up uh, facts on the ground and then build up the picture from there so that we are, so that we're actually basing uh, uh, to come back to the beginning of why I started my project so that we're basing uh, our worldviews on, uh, you know, the, on and an, uh, a keen uh, understanding of an appreciation for what actually happened um, and how we got here. Awesome. I, I think that's a great place to, to close my guests today have been Jason Crawford and Robert Trudzinski. They're really doing uh, fantastic work. Uh, Jason, I know you could be building another company right now, but uh, the, the fact that you're, that you're focusing on this just shows how important it is. So for, for listeners who want to learn more, you can check out uh, rootsofprogress.org. And, uh, and Rob, uh, you know, we just spoke about your new book, who, who is John Galt anyway? And you can check out both Rob and Jason on, on Twitter. Is there any other plugs uh, you guys want to end with? Uh, I've got a uh, website, Trzinski Letter, uh, TrzinskiLetter.com, uh, T-R-A-C-I-N-S-K-I, Letter.com. Awesome. Jason, uh, Rob, thank you so much for, for a great episode and, and for doing the work that you do. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 